0: Alright, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for this chapter in the Bible, Lord, that we're going to look at and the text uh, in Hebrew that was laid out before us. And, and we thank you for the translators that faithfully, Lord, gave this to us so we could understand it. And God, this being one of the more challenging uh, chapters in the Bible to understand, God, I ask that your spirit would speak to us wisdom because, God, I, there is no way that we can do justice to this chapter. And God, there's probably no way that we'll ever find out the deepest meanings of this chapter, Lord. Um, but Lord, your spirit can reveal to us things that no man could speak into our heart. And your word is perfectly capable and, and shall uh, plant deep down in our soul seeds of your glory and of grace, Father. And so, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Today's... Bible study is called "Alexander the Great Well, kinda. Kinda great. The Alexander the Kind of Great." Is that a good name? All right. So, we're gonna, this is going to be a little different, but in order to be able to understand this chapter, you have to understand a little bit of history. I'm, I love history. I just watched Lincoln last night. It was a cool movie about the history of Abraham Lincoln, and, and uh, so I'm into it, like how history came across, and what the Lord did in history, and this is a, a chapter that is just amazing in its depth and in, in what it's going to communicate to us. So, Alexander the Great, if you didn't know, was one of the world's greatest generals. Um, He became king of uh, the Greek Empire when he was 20, and he died by age 32. So between 20 and 32, he conquered basically the entire known world and uh, created one of the largest empires in history. In fact, by the latter part of his rule, he would just say he wanted a country, and they would surrender. He'd be like, I'm coming to you, and they're like, we surrender. And then more than that, other people would just come to him and say, we want you to rule us whether you want to or not. And I can't emphasize enough how difficult these exploits were in history. No one could do this. The the world had so many kings and countries and and different factions to have a leader who did this. And he didn't have the biggest army. He did inherit a, a veteran army, but it wasn't like the biggest. Excuse me. So, these things didn't just fall in his lap. He was truly a remarkable guy, and in fact, they still study his techniques today in army school, whatever you call that. I don't know, where do you go to school to become the next world-dominating emperor? Army school, right. You got my back always, Peggy. I love that. So, on his path, he went from Was for you guys, Greece, and he went through Asia Minor, and then he traveled from Asia Minor, he went down through Israel to Egypt, and then he went over and conquered this way, Pakistan, and over to India, conquered all of that in his life, okay? Then he came back to Babylon, died in Babylon, that was his 12 years, okay? The time where he was going from Asia Minor down into Israel is what we're talking about right now. So the cities mentioned in the first seven verses of this chapter that we're going to look at, they trace Alexander's march through the promised land in 332 and 331 B.C. All right, So I'm giving you that before we read it, because once we start reading it, you're going to be like, oh, okay, that's what he's talking about. Because if you just read it, if you're reading this for your devotions, you might not get that. <laughs> you might be like, what is he talking about? Who are all these people and why is there all these cities and why does this matter? Why is this in the Bible that God preserved for me? Why did he give it to me? So, but when we look at it with the history of it, there's some interesting stuff we're going to see. So let's read the first four verses here. Says the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they were very wise. For Tyre built herself a tower and heaped up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out and will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. So remember, this was written 150 years before these events took place, before Alexander was born, before Anyone could have possibly known. The Lord put this very specific prophecy of the judgment coming against these various cities. Now, notice the very first part of that verse. It says, "For the eyes of men, of all men, and the tribes of Israel are on the Lord." See the reason why God has gave, gave us this chapter. He, he lays out right at the beginning. He says, "I'm going to explain a bunch. I'm going to prophesy a bunch of things that are going to happen beforehand because." People have to consider me. All the world is focused on me, he says. You know, people think they don't have to consider the Lord. People think they can ignore God, but they're wrong. They cannot ignore God. And God forces the issue in people's lives by prophecy. The Lord is actually the center of attention at all times to everyone in the entire world, whether they like it or not. Whether they think they're ignoring him or calling themselves an atheist or an agnostic they're really just in a war with God. They're really fighting for fighting God and warring against Him and His Spirit. That's why the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that one unforgivable sin. You guys remember that. When the Lord says, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit is coming into your heart every single day saying, I'm the truth, come to Jesus, repent, fall on your knees before me and all you will have life. The Holy Spirit does that to everyone's life all the time. But that word repent is offensive. It's offensive to me. It's offensive to everyone. When we say you have to repent, you have to say I was wrong. And so people are at war with that. So he is the center of attention. Everyone's eyes are on him. And this is one way that the Lord can intervene in human history and have everyone take notice. It's prophecy, fulfilling prophecy. And the thing is, almost anyone who truthfully and honestly investigates the realities of God's prophecy and all of his prophecies confess that God is a huge part of human history. In fact, many of the greatest apologists that we have for the Christian faith right now, they started as atheists or agnostic, and they wanted to investigate the claims of the Bible so they could prove them wrong. And then they're like, I need to get saved! (laughs) Yeah, because the best thing is when someone says, I'm going to investigate whether the Bible's true, and I say, go for it, please do! Read the Bible! Because something happens when you read the Word of God and His Spirit tugs at your heart and then you find out things like what we're reading right now, a series of cities listed that are in the exact order that Alexander the Great conquered them in, and some very specific things about Tyre and Sidon. Okay? So... This, this is just amazing with this Tyre and Sidon. So if you're looking at Israel, and this is Israel, it's like this size, Tyre and Sidon are right up here, on the right north in the Lebanon-type area. And these are uh, two major cities up there. And Tyre was an important commercial city, and, and it was thought to be Im- impossible to conquer. The Assyrians led siege against Tyre for five years, but never conquered the city. Nebuchadnezzar tried for 13 years to conquer Tyre, but Alexander did it in seven months. He, he, it was amazing, because Tyre was built out in the, in the bay. It wasn't built on the land. They actually built the city by dumping stuff in the water and creating land out there so that it, it was like an island. Okay? And so what Alexander did is he, he conquered the city that was next to it and used the rubble from the old city to make a causeway out to the island city, and it was a spectacular achievement of both military and engineering strategy. It was a, it was a truly remarkable thing. And so, that's, the Bible foretold it. What do he say here? He says, against Tyre, uh, you have built yourself a tower and heaped up silver like dust and gold, but the Lord will cast her out, will destroy her with the power in the sea. Because what happened is, he set, that, set it on fire and then just tore the whole thing down into the rubble and it's, it's in the ocean today. So it's fulfilled, just like Jesus said it would be. Then, he goes on, and the next group of cities... Is the Philistines. So he Alexander the Great continued to go down Israel, passed by Jerusalem and went down to the southern part of Israel where the Philistines area was. Okay, and so that's where we're at right now. So look at verse five. Ashkelon, which was a city of the Philistines, shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful, and Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. That's speaking of the uh, the Philistines were, were gross in their, uh, they like to eat raw Food and animals with the blood in them and stuff like that which is forbidden they were vampires basically and uh, so yeah so they didn't they, God said I'm, th- that's going away this is the judgment on that wicked behavior is this and I will take away the blood from his mouth the his seed, but he who remains even shall be for God and shall be like a leader in Judah and, and Ekron like a Jebusite so there's going to be a few people that survive and those people are going to love the Lord so there's, he will save the people that love him he says Even though they're a different race, he said, there's going to be like the Jebusites. Well, who were the Jebusites? The Jebusites, in the time of David, he saved them, even though they were allowed to live in Jerusalem and serve the Lord, even though they weren't Jewish, okay? So, verse 8, I will camp. This is a very important verse. Highlight it, star it. This is the key, okay? I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him... It's talking about Alexander the Great who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. Okay, so this prophecy accurately foretells the cities that Alexander would would conquer as he traveled through the Philistines' territory. God used Alexander the Great to bring judgment on these Philistines. Okay, so all that is what happened. Now, but that verse at the end is crazy because it tells us what would happen with Jerusalem during this time. And I'm, I'm going to explain, uh, I have all the text here of Josephus. Josephus was a historian that lived way back, like just a little bit after Jesus, and he recorded very detailed about um, what happened during this time. And I could kind of read it to you, but it's about three pages long, so I'm going to kind of summarize it, kind of read parts of it, and uh, to help you understand what happened, okay? It says, Now Alexander, when he had taken Gaza, made haste to go up to Jerusalem and, and Judah, Jadua, J A D D U A, was the high priest in Jerusalem. And when he heard that Alexander was on his way, he was in agony and utter terror, as uh, not knowing how he should meet uh, the Macedonians, which was the, the Greeks that Alexander led. Uh, so he ordained that the people should make uh, supplications and prayers and join him in offering, making sacrifices to God, who, who uh, he besought to protect the nation and to deliver them from the perils that were coming upon him. Now, it's too bad they didn't read Zechariah, because they had Zechariah. They didn't know that this was being prophesied. And they could have just read this verse, verse 8, which said, I will camp around my house because of this army. Okay, But God is gracious, God is gentle, and what happens is, he goes to sleep. And he has a dream, and God tells him in this dream uh, that he should take courage and open the gates and put on his white garments and go out with all the priests to meet Alexander the Great. And so he woke up, and he believed God, and he did exactly what that day. Opened the gates, they were like, we're just, we're here for you, we're a different people. Alexander, we're not, we're not a threat, we're not someone you can conquer. We don't even think you can conquer us because God told him in this dream. So they they did that. So when Alexander came to him, it's crazy, okay? So he goes up to him, and... um, uh, let me just find the place. Uh, Alexander saw the multitude in the distance in their white garments, and while the priest stood clothed in their fine linen and the high priest in his purple and scarlet clothing with his miter on his head and having a golden plate which had the name of God engraved on it, he approached by himself. So Alexander stops his whole army and approaches by himself to the priest. And, so all the, and, and, so, and then he saluted the high priest. So Alexander started, like, bowing down to the priest, the high priest of God, okay? So, whereupon the kings of Syria and the rest were surprised at what Alexander had done, and they supposed him to be, had gone crazy in his mind. However, Parmenio, who was Alexander's second in command, alone went up to him and asked him how it came to pass when all others adored him that he should adore the high priest of the Jews. To whom he replied, I do not adore him, but I adore his God that he is the high priest of. For I saw this very person in a dream, and in this very way that everyone was dressed, I saw it. And when I was in Macedonia, and when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, this dream exhorted me to make no delay but to boldly pass over the sea, and that he would conduct my army, and that he would give me dominion over the Persians, and uh, and so nothing that was told to me in this dream has been false. And so he believed that God had told him to go conquer and that God said he would be with him. So, so he says, I believe that this would bring my army under divine conduct and that we would conquer Darius, which he did. And so... When he had given the high priest his right hand, the priest ran along with him, and he came into the city and went up into the temple, and he offered sacrifices to God according to the high priest's direction and, uh, and treated everyone awesome, okay? And so, and then the next morning, so uh, then he had like this big dinner, and he was, he was really tired, and he's like, I just want to be alone and kind of figure out what's going on. So the next morning, they come in, and they, get, they, they say, we want to show you something, Alexander, and he's like, what is it? And they, they, wanted, they opened to him the book of Daniel, where it talked about him. And it's like, what? So Daniel was written 250 years before Alexander was born. But turn with me to Daniel chapter 8, and you're going to see, this is just going to blow your mind. In Daniel chapter 8, we see Alexander just specifically talked about. In fact, Daniel chapter 8 makes many people believe that the book of Daniel was actually written much later than what it actually was written. So liberal scholars will say, well, because the Daniel chapter 8 is, written, is so perfectly um, explains the life of, of Alexander the Great and then the following kingdoms, it's impossible that God, that, that people wrote the book of Daniel when Everyone says that they did. But, we know that it was actually just prophecy and I can't find the book of Daniel in my Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel! Woo! pastor should be able to find that. Alright. So, look with me in, in chapter 8, alright? The vision of the ram and the goat, and it says in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar a vision appeared to me and the Uh, after the one that appeared to me the first time. And I saw the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I I was in Shushan in the citadel, which is the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision I was by the river Ulai, and I lifted my eyes and saw, and there was standing beside the river a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So this is the Medo-Persian Empire. It's a prophecy of the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, who's ruling right now is the Babylonians. So there's four empires pro- prophesied in these prophecies in Daniel. The first was the Babylonians, which they were in now. The next were the Medes and the Persians. The Persians would be stronger than the Medes, that's why one horn is bigger than the other, and then the Persians came after the Medes, and that's why one is one came after the other. So that's who we're talking about, all right? The Medes and the Persians. Verse four. Then I saw the, the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did all he did according to his will, and he became great. So that's talking about Alexander, okay. And as time I, well, I'm sorry, that's that's the prophecy before Alexander, that's the, the Medo-Persian Empire. Verse five. And as as I was considering, suddenly a male goat, this is Alexander, came from the west across the surface of the whole earth. Uh, without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram, which had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confront the ram, and he was moved with rage against him, and attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So that's when Alexander, what he had just finished doing. He had just gone to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre was the, the, the stronghold of Darius from the Medes and the Persians. I mean, this was, he had just finished doing this. And so they said, hey, Alexander, guess what? You just did this. And this was written 250 years ago, bro. Wow, what a testimony to him. And then verse 8, Then the, therefore the male groat grew very great, and when he became strong, the large horn was broken off and in place of it four notable ones. Now, they probably stopped right there. <laughs> they probably stopped right before that verse and didn't... All like, what was the next part? Say, Oh, you don't have to worry about it. You don't, don't worry about that, because it says he's going to die unexpectedly, and that's exactly what happened. He died at the age of 32. He got sick and died. Um, and his kingdom was divided into these four sections, which is exactly what the Bible says. Unbelievable. Now, we're not in Daniel right now. If we were, we'd go way deeper into that. And I'd tell you about the four different guys that were in the four different areas of his kingdom and how that all happened exactly how the Bible said. But we won't, I won't do that today. So, back in Zechariah. They brought... He comes up to Jerusalem. God said in Zechariah, I will camp around my house. You don't have to worry about it. I'm going to take care of you. All right. So unbelievable accuracy we see from the Word of God written 250 years and 150 years before this this joker was born, this guy. You know, So if you're ever doubting the Bible, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Just think, man, the Word of God is just amazing. Look at verse 9 with me. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a coal, the foal of a donkey. Does that sound familiar to you guys? Obviously. We, we read it every Christmas, right? Or Easter time or whatever Whatever we read. It's in the New Testament. Because so every time we're reading through Matthew and Mark and Luke, we see this verse. And we know that this, is, this was fulfilled. This was fulfilled by Jesus. So we have a prop. This is where it's from in Zechariah chapter 9. But notice that when it comes in this book, in this chapter, it came after, right after he started, he was talking about Alexander the Great, which is basically the greatest king the world has to offer. The greatest guy, like just, just was able to conquer anything. Then we have Jesus coming and and this is his, his lowly coming. We're gonna see his triumphant coming in just a minute. But this is his his humble, his his lowly coming. And it, it shows us that God is coming to conquer too. Just like Alexander the Great was was great at conquering stuff, Jesus is the is infinitely better at conquering stuff. And this, what it's talking about right now, him coming in with the donkey, is him conquering sin. And it's it's to the extent Alexander was able to conquer the world, Jesus conquered sin so perfectly, so wonderfully. And we know what happened here. You know, um, that day was Palm Sunday, which is actually coming up really soon. And two, two Sundays from now is when we celebrate Palm Sunday. And it was the day that Jesus presented himself as the Messiah to Israel. And it's interesting because back in Daniel chapter 9... If we read it, it tells us the exact day that that would have happened. Again, if they were reading their Bible, if they were counting the days, and you counted the days, it was 185,880 days or 560, Some I messed up the last, it's 185,000 something days, actual days, until it said the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. And it happened. That day that Daniel spoke of was this day where Jesus got on a donkey, a a young donkey, and rode in and everyone was shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were saying, this is our Messiah. And you know what they were all expecting him to do? Kick out the Romans. Kick out the mean Pharisees and, and just be the king right then. Fix everything right then. And what did Jesus do? He said, no, that's not what I'm here to conquer right now. That'll come. And we're going. Our next verse talks about that. But this verse was so much more important for us because he had to come as the Messiah to conquer our sin, to be slain and butchered for our sin. And that's why it says, rejoice, oh, daughter. Um, you know, rejoice, you weak ones. I see their daughters and, and and uh, daughters of Iron, daughters of Jerusalem, weak ones, humble ones. He's your king. He's the king of the humble people. That's who receive his grace. You will get to see him. Behold, your king, you will get to see him. He is coming to you and you don't have to come to him. He says he's coming to you. You don't have to try to make your way to him. And, and what is he's just and has salvation. Those are the party favors he brings with him to his party justice and salvation. Everything is done right. And when it's all messed up, he saves. And he's riding on a donkey, which, of course, we just talked about him fulfilling. And it's interesting because, did you know kings actually rode on donkeys? They rode on donkeys when they were just going around town or going from place to place. They rode on donkeys back then, which I didn't know. I thought they rode on horses. But I learned that they, they only rode on horses when they were going to war. That's what horses were. for. they were war horses, all right? donkeys rode a lot smoother and like and and they were just like more chill. they were like the low riders back in the day, all right so the kings liked to ride on the low riders, and that's the cool thing is that the first time jesus came he he was a king, he was a king, but he was just riding low. he was taking the low it says he was lowly, right low rider lowry lot right this works so the second time he comes, what does the Bible say? What is he riding on? Horse. A big old fat white horse. Right? That's probably got lightning shooting out of his eyes. I mean, just, it's going to be the best war horse you ever imagined. Because what is he doing the second time? He comes back. He's going to war. He's destroying everything that is not justice and not salvation and not righteous. He sets up his kingdom, which is during the millennium. This reminds me of the verse that we all know, Philippians chapter 2, that says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow those in heaven those on earth those are under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father and I want to see that happen. I want him to come back and I believe he is coming back soon. I want to see the millennium, and that's what that's talking about there. When every knee is going to see him, every knee is going to bow, everyone's going to see him, that's going to happen. And just like Philippians went from the humble Jesus to the exalted Jesus, the first coming of a humble servant, the second coming of a glorified king, it does in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, as the humble king, and now look at verse 10. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a description of the thousand year reign of Christ. Peace will be enforced. There will be no war. There will be no fights. Your children will never argue about their video games. There will never be an argument at the stop signs because there will be no red lights. It will be awesome. (laughs) All green lights, no matter where we go. Never have to stop for a red light. Oh, that'll be great. But he does. He fixes everything. And it says the dominion shall be from sea to sea, which means he's going to rule the whole earth. It's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be fantastic. And this verse declares a very true reality that when Jesus comes back, he fixes everything. That's the fulfillment of... Of a restoration of the whole world. We know we've been looking, this, this whole series is called A Restoration Project and how he fixes us and restores us in our lives. And this is just a big picture of that. You know, he, he'll make Alexander look like a chump. The way Alexander just came through and, and just like a furious goat, you know, Jesus is going to come through and it's just going to be perfect. Everything is fixed, Every every nation is conquered. In his name for glory and for goodness. Now look at verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from a waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope, or you prisoners who have hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. And this is just a treasure in this verse that would have been hard to find, I think, if I was just reading through them with my devotions. If I wasn't stopping to study and, and really dive in, I think I would have missed some stuff because I was really blessed when I was looking at that because of the blood of your covenant. You know, they're under the old covenant right now. But the blood of that old covenant, when they had to make those sacrifices and kill those sheep and, and stab those goats and kill the birds and all the blood that had, was involved in this old covenant, what did it all speak of? The blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ, and they always looked forward in faith to that sacrifice, that blood, and says because of that blood so so I, I look at that and I see it's foreshadowing it's speaking of the blood of Jesus, and he restores by the blood. It's always the blood. if there's a challenge in your life, if you feel like you're in a, a waterless pit, like it says here, like a dry pit. Maybe it's impossible to get out of, and it's so dry inside, you just feel like your life is, is dry. And you're just empty. It's because of the blood that he's going to restore you. He's going to fix it. He's going to rescue you. And it's funny, because dryness is one thing that forces you to realize your complete dependence on a supernatural power. Dryness will cause even the hardest atheists to cry out to God, and that they don't even claim they claim to not even believe in droughts. I remember when I was in uh, right after college, I was up in Greeley, and there was this big drought in Greeley, and so they called a prayer meeting in like one of the the public school gymnasiums up there, and uh, and we went and we prayed and I did a song and we prayed, and there was farmers there that were just hard never would go to church, but they were praying to God for rain. It's really interesting what dryness does. And it's, it's just the same in our hearts. It's probably even worse in our hearts. When you feel dry in your hearts, there's nothing that satisfies that except the Lord. In South Africa, a uh, naturist club owner, that means a, a nudist colony, Bo Brimmel, was irked by accusations from moral watchdogs that a, a shriveling drought was brought on by the sin of the nude togetherness in his 100-acre 1,000-acre farm, farm down there in South Africa. So he was just mad about it, so he asked his 370 visitors to get dressed, and for the first time in two months, it poured rain. <laughs> and he said, quote, It's enough to make me become a monk. I just thought that was a funny story. So, then he says here, you prisoners who have hope, you, you people who are, are still in this life and, and still struggling, wandering along, but you have hope, he says, return to that stronghold. He says, return, both in the sense of a military fortress and a spiritual fortress. The stronghold is the Lord Himself. And He says, when you do, when you come back to me, when you just hide yourself in me, He says, I restore double. That is not a bad investment. To trust in the Lord is never a bad investment. But I trusted in the Lord and I got hurt, you say. And that's a hard, hard thing to answer. But even if it seems that way, you don't see the end. Your inheritance is coming, like we talked about Sunday. It will be amazing for you if you trusted in the Lord. Just keep trusting in the Lord no matter what you see and no matter what, you happen, what happens to you. I remember going through a, a tough time in my life where it was, it was not easy to trust in the Lord. It was not easy to continue going on doing what I knew I was supposed to do. And my dad was so awesome because he just said to me, just do what's right. Just keep doing what's right. You make good decisions and God will bless you. And it was so hard when I didn't see any of those blessings. There was a time where they were hidden from me. I was in a waterless pit, in the bottom of the pit, where you could only see, I could only see the dirt around me. It was just brown and dry. But when you trust the Lord, He becomes your stronghold. And He will defend you. And He will reward you. And so, that's my encouragement. I mean, I just see that this verse is so real. You trust in the Lord. You do what's right, even though people make fun of you, even though it's not easy, even though you might lose your house or your family or your job or anything. Trust in the Lord. Do what's right. And it will never be bad for you in the long run. So, let's look at verse 9 to 15. <clears throat> Rejoice. Oh, we already did that, didn't we? Where are we at? 13. Verse 13. For I have bent... Yeah, I have bent... Right? Where am I at? Yeah, verse 13. For I have bent Judah, my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, that's Israel, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword... Of a mighty man this was fulfilled in the in the the time between the testaments the old testament and the new testament it was during the Maccabeans okay so the lord raised up the Maccabeans to fight against the the greek people and the, after alexander the great his kingdom was divided into four and the Ptolemies and the sud and the other people uh, were somewhere south of israel somewhere north and they kept fighting um, amongst over israel and israel just kept getting tossed back and forth eventually the Maccabeans rose up and israel won their independence Fulfilled right there. Jesus said it would, or God said it would happen right here. It's amazing. Verse 14. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will blow the trumpets, and will go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them, and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine, and they shall be filled with "'Blood, like basins, like the corners of the altar. "'But the Lord their God will save them in that day "'as the flock of his people, "'for they shall be like the jewels of a crown, like a, like, "'lifted like a banner over his land. "'For how great is its goodness, "'and how great is its beauty! "'Grain shall make the young man thrive, "'and new wine the young women.'" So in this final section here, the Lord says, I'm doing the fighting for you. And this is again fulfilled during the millennium time. So this chapter jumps from things that we've seen in the past for us and things that are still future for us. We're kind of in this middle land where when Zechariah wrote it, it was all future. So it didn't really matter to him. He was just writing it all down. But for us, we, we have so much knowledge of what, what has happened in history. It's amazing the day that we're living in today. We even have so much knowledge of the future. Because we've seen the faithfulness of his word so far. We know that this is going to come to pass. So this verse 14 through 17 is talking about the millennium. And it says that God himself is going to go to war. So Jesus, again, seen as better than Alexander the Great. He comes down. He conquers everybody. And he sets up this kingdom. Uh, And it's interesting because you know the... um, The Muslims have a holy war idea, too. It's called jihad. You guys know about it. And uh, in their holy war, it's the people of God that do the fighting, that win a battle for him. It's so sad. Because in our holy war, we have a holy war, too. But, you know, our holy war, God says, I blow the trumpet and I go fight. You guys just sit back and watch me. And it's so great to have a God that's so gracious, loving, protective of his people. He cares so much. And he will defend them, it says. And, uh, and then the, verse 16. He will save them in that day, the flock of his people. And they shall be like jewels of a crown, like a banner over his head. And then he describes the millennium here, what it's going to be like. Just the greatness of it. That uh, how great is its goodness. How great is its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and and wine the young women. Meaning, everyone's going to be so happy. Everyone's going to be so satisfied. Everyone's going to be taken care of. Israel's going to be so beautiful. The whole world is going to come to Israel once a year during the millennium on vacation to say hi to Jesus. We'll study that in a couple chapters. It's going to be awesome. All this being said, the result of having Jesus show up and fight for you is just joy it's peace he takes care of the battles when we trust in him when we let him be our stronghold so in this chapter you know it was a, this is a challenging chapter this is tough for us to go through but i really think that the lord had something there for us it's that he is willing to fight for you he is willing to go to war for you. And He's going to fix everything in your life. So, trust Him. Trust Him today. Trust Him when you're in that pit, that watery, that waterless pit, that dry place in your life. Because I know some of you are in a dry place. Some of you have been in a dry place for a long time. Trust Him. Wait and see the deliverance. Because your King comes to you. He came already on a riding on that donkey, but he's gonna come next time on a horse. It's gonna be awesome. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you, God, for your word and how it how it changes us, changes the way we think. God, I thank you that you chose Alexander the Great and you, you talked so much about him and enabled him to do the things that he did. Lord God, and I thank you so much that you're so much better. Lord, that you contrasted yourself and your champion Jesus saving us and going to war for us. Lord, when you died on the cross. Lord, help us to trust and believe in your cross and just be made new every day as we trust, as we as we keep our eyes focused on you. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God, and I pray you would encourage each person in here. In your name we pray. Amen.